0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: You know, there are a few topics that are ubiquitous and need to be addressed by every single medical device And one of those topics is biocompatibility. I don't care if your product is non-patient contacting and is only software-based. There's still something you need to address from a biocompatibility standpoint. I know it seems silly in in those non-patient contacting type products, but you still need to deal deal with it and address it in some form or fashion. Keep in mind that patient contacting devices, there's a huge ramification with respect to biocompatibility. And FDA has recently come out with some new guidance documents. Of course, there is the longstanding ISO 10993 series of standards on the topic as well. Well, on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews and I dive into some of the the details on the topic of biocompatibility. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and folks. Kind of an interesting topic to talk about today, and I'm just thinking about have Have we ever talked about this on the Global Medical Device Podcast? And I don't think so. And the topic today is biocompatibility. And some of you may be wondering about why we're diving into biocompatibility today. Well. Short story, uh, and we'll get into the details, of course, is there are some relatively new guidances that have come from FDA addressing the topic of biocompatibility, and want to dive into some of the details. Now, I'll give you the caveat or disclaimer at the beginning anyway, that uh, the intent of this episode is not to dive in into this super depth details and and get into prescriptive practices on biocompatibility but more about you know sort of big picture things as it relates to the topic and joining me on this episode of the global medical device podcast is Mike Drews with vascular sciences so Mike welcome thank you John
0: always a pleasure to speak with you and your
1: audience absolutely so as I mentioned, there's been some some recent movement or activity from from FDA with respect to biocompatibility. Might be a good place to sort of set the stage for folks on some of the newer guidances that, that are out there on the topic. So do you mind uh, diving into that portion first, and then we'll get into some of the details?
0: Yeah, absolutely, John. And as always, thanks very much for the opportunity to have this discussion today about a a very, very important topic, and that is biocompatibility and medical device development. So specifically, there were three either new or updated guidances that FDA has put out literally within the last month. And let me just uh, tick them off very quickly, and then we can talk about them individually. The first one, and really the only new one, is titled Select Updates for Biocompatibility of Certain Devices in Contact with Intact Skin. And that was a draft guidance that just came out literally a week or two ago. The other two guidances are finalized guidances. And keep in mind, John, as we've talked about before, there's really no such thing as a final guidance, but that's what FDA calls it. The first one is technical considerations for non-clinical assessment of medical devices containing nitinol. That originally came out as a draft about a a year and a half ago, and now FDA has just finalized it. And then the third guidance that was finalized last month, use of international standard ISO 10993-1, biological evaluation of medical devices, part one, for evaluation and testing within a risk management process. That's the sort of the Bible, if you will, of biocompatibility. That one was finalized uh, just last month. So those are the three guidances, uh, and we can provide links to those as, as part of the podcast. But uh,
1: that's what uh, what we're okay. hoping to drill into a little bit today. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely provide links, folks. So be sure to check those out in the text that accompanies the 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 podcast on Greenlight. All right. So let's. So let's I guess let's a good place to start. Let's start with the biocompatibility guidance. What is this all about? What is this regarding?
0: It's a great question, John. So first of all, this is a new guidance, and I'm putting the word new in air quotes because the guidance just came out. This is a draft guidance. But in terms of subject matter, in terms of content, there's really nothing new here. And and basically, the intent of FDA is to try to clarify the types of biocompatibility information that they're looking for in submissions, specifically with regard to devices mostly made of polymers that come in contact with the skin. So this is a a fairly focused guidance. It deals with primarily medical devices that come in contact with the skin. And as you probably know, John, when it comes to biocompatibility, and this is all spelled out in the ISO 10993 as well, so you can kind of think of this biocomp guidance really as nothing more than a subset of the ISO 10993 standard. Uh, But they basically, in part, break this down by exposure, so for example, if it comes in contact with intact skin for less than a day, that would be limited exposure. Between one day and one month, that would be prolonged. Or finally, long-term contact, which would be more than a month. But I always find it interesting, John, that working in the gray area. So for example, I've had situations where a device is in contact with a patient for some period of time, and then it's not. And then it comes in contact with the patient again for a period of time. And then it's not. So those kinds of things, those kinds of situations, they don't fit easily into one of those buckets. And that's up to us to figure out, you know, how to apply it. So it's those gray areas. That's one gray area. Another gray area is, well, what if the person is wearing clothing or what if they have hair or sweats? You know, how can that interfere? So, again, that's all part of the calculus here. But here's the the concern that I have about this particular guidance, John, and I would be curious as to hearing your thoughts on this, if you agree, or perhaps disagree. Yeah, FDA outlines some of the criteria for certain medical devices that have, that are made of these materials that, that, that have what they call, these are not, these are FDA's words, John, not mine, very low biocompatibility risk. And a long history of safe use in medical devices. And in those cases, FDA goes on to say that you may be able to bypass biocompatibility testing. As a matter of fact, let me read to you one sentence from the guidance, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, John. They say, quote, this select update describes a least burdensome approach for these devices that recommends specific material testing in a pre-market submission. And this is the Concerning part to me, John, in lieu of biocompatibility testing, in lieu of biocompatibility testing. And let me explain why this is a concern to me, John. And then, again, you can tell us if you agree or not. Okay. What I'm afraid is that some folks, especially people who are not real knowledgeable about biocompatibility in particular or medical device gen- uh, development in general, they're going to interpret that in perhaps the not appropriate way. In other words, they're going to look at that as an excuse to say, oh, gee, FDA says I don't have to do biocompatibility testing. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, John. I'm not naive. I'm not, you know, I didn't fall <laughs> off the turnip truck yesterday. That's a big fear that i have that some people may easily misinterpret what fda is meaning here do you have a similar concern john or maybe you think i'm just overreacting in my old age
1: uh, no i well, uh, yes i have a similar concern and no i don't think you're overreacting i mean the you know and, and i guess a little bit of context and background Ho- hopefully the topic of biocompatibility is not new or novel to folks listening, especially if you have patient-contacting products. I mean, the ten nine nine three standard. Gosh, I don't even remember the first version of of that standard, but it's been been around a long, long, long time. And you know, over my career, anyway, I, I know there's been it's a, it's a sometimes a debatable topic. You know, like if I remember some projects that I worked on in the past, some devices I worked on where we were using a material where You know, we already had a history of biocompatibility and or there was already industry history of that. And we were always trying to leverage or justify the previous or prior art, if you will, with respect to that. But, and I think that's a key point that, that some people to your point might be misinterpreting. I mean, it is, you have to have prior art, so to speak, or prior knowledge or prior evidence to support that. But, But read the wrong way, someone could easily uh, formulate a different point of view. And so, yeah, I do see that statement as problematic.
0: Well, John, let me give you a quick example. So you mentioned that biocompatibility is not new or novel. And listen, as a biomedical engineer, I would you know agree with you more than 100%. And for the benefit of our audience, some people may already know that I'm a subject matter expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being biomaterials and biocompatibility. So this is something that I do know a little something about. but to your point about this is this is not new or novel. I uh, I wonder for, if for some people it is. And here's what I mean. A while ago I got a call from uh, at the time with one of my new customers, and I was they were getting ready to go to the FDA with the pre-sub, and I was going through my laundry list of questions. You know, have you done this? Have you done that? And so on. And we got to the the topic of biocompatibility, and I said, Where are you on your biocomp testing? And I guess I should say, John, that this is a medical device that was going to be going inside of a patient, an implant for the rest of their life. So I asked them, you know, where are you on your biocomp testing? And they said, what's that? Oh, no. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, I wish I could tell you that I was making this story up, John. I can't. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to name the people or the company or anything, right. but that is a true Story And regrettably, John, this helps to explain why we have so much regulation and so much Mm -hmm. guidance. Because, you know, unfortunately, there are some people out there, you know, I don't want to stereotype, you know, some people, you know, really know what they're doing. But regrettably, there are other people that are out there that really don't. And if you don't, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Just recognize that you don't and get somebody on your team, either internally or perhaps an external consultant like me or somebody else, to, to help you. Because nobody can know everything, but you've got to be able to recognize, obviously, what you don't know. So is biocompatibility new or novel? Absolutely not, at least not to some of us, but to others, perhaps Yeah,
1: so. Yeah, and and I'm going to make a statement that I, I think is universal, and we can peel it apart if necessary, but folks – every single medical device needs to address biocompatibility. Now, I know some of you may be saying, my device is software. It's not patient contacting. Okay, valid. You still need to address it from the eyes of the regulatory perspective and, and from your own perspective. If it's not applicable, then you need to explain why it is not applicable. But this is not a topic that you can ignore. I mean, this is it's table stakes, in my opinion, for every single medical device, you have to address biocompatibility.
0: I definitely agree with you, John. And I would just like to make one other point, and then I have some, some recommendations based on this guidance. To me, what I just said, and then what you just said, there's nothing new here. This has always been my approach. One of the problems that I have with the way that the 10993 standard is laid out and, as I said earlier, this is sort of the gold standard for biocompatibility. They have these tables, depending on you know whether this is a skin contact yeah. or an implant or whatever it is, and okay, if you're doing this kind of a device, this is the kind of testing that you need to do, that kind of a device, this is kind of testing. I think that's okay as a starting point, but I never take that as gospel. I never take take that as as you know coming down from upon high because. In some cases, some of the testing that they recommend, in my opinion, as a professional biomedical engineer, is not necessary. And in other cases, what they're recommending might not be enough, mm-hmm. and we need to do more. Yeah. So I believe those, quote-unquote, standards, and I'm putting the word standards again in air quote, is just a, is just a starting point. It's not, it's
1: not gospel.
0: Right. Um, so should we go on and talk about some of the suggestions and recommendations from this guidance?
1: And one moment, I just want to build upon that, folks, the sure. the 10993 series of standards, there's a lot of parts to it. It is a somewhat complicated uh, standard or series of standards with respect to biocompatibility. And, you know, it's, it's for the layperson or even for an experienced medical device professional interpreting all the nuances and the details of these standards. It, it's you're you're going to have to consult somebody that has expertise in this. Chances are, you know, somebody like Mike Drews, uh, for example, who has expertise with biomaterials and, and, and application of, of biocompatibility. So this is not a trivial thing. Don't just assume that you can review the guidance, review the standards, check some boxes and be done. And there's a good chance, especially if your product is, is contacting the patient in any sort of way you're going to have to corroborate the biocompatibility of your product with objective evidence so actual testing has to be done to, to corroborate your case for biocompatibility so this is a big deal and you know don't don't make the mistake that uh, mike shared where you know you're somewhat midstream in your product development you're pursuing a, a pre-submission or even, maybe even further down the road and you've got an implant or any sort of patient contacting product If you haven't addressed biocompatibility, put the brakes on right now and educate yourself and learn about what's important with respect to your product and and engage experts to help you navigate this process. But yes, Mike, let's dive into some of the more specifics. What is FDA suggesting and recommending in this guidance? So I have just three or four specific comments and suggestions based on
0: what I thought was important in the guidance. The first one is FDA is asking uh, manufacturers to include a list of all of the materials that we use in our device that in this case have either direct or indirect co- contact with the skin, and a statement confirming that the list of those materials has a documented history of safe use in a legally marketed medical device in the United States. That's those, those are very easy words to say, John, but what do they mean in reality? In other words, how do we show that? One problem that I run into uh, in working with a number of companies is they treat a number of materials in sort of a generic or ubiquitous sense. Like they say, well, we're using polyurethane, somebody else used polyurethane, therefore, you know, it's the same. Well, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of different versions of polyurethanes that have different uh, catalysts, different cross-linkers, different maybe mechanical properties and chemical properties and so on. So we can't overgeneralize. We have to be able to do an apples to apples comparison. Even in one of the uh, companies that I'm working with right now, we're putting together a pre-sub they're using silicone in their particular medical device. And they're trying to make an argument that, yeah, people have been using silicone for a long time for different things. Uh but the problem is there's different kinds of silicone and they don't always, you know, act the same way. And the challenge for us as manufacturers is we don't, you know, the the, the material suppliers that we're getting our materials from they're usually not going to, uh, you know, be keen on telling us, oh yeah, this exact formulation of this material is something that we sell to your competitor to make, you know, some other medical device. And one of the ideas that I've suggested, John, maybe this is a topic of a different discussion, is maybe we need a biomaterial approval pathway, something like a 510K or de novo for materials because right now john there's no way to get fda to approve a material the only way to do right. that is you get you 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 they approve a device and if the device is made of a new material then they kind of approve it but yeah, uh, but 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 that i think would help a lot
1: can i um, can i chime and, in on that yeah please so uh, and i'll bring in um, an example from my uh i guess this now somewhat distant past on a project that i was working on um and i don't want to give too many details away, but enough to where people could kind of wrap their head around this. So I, w- I was working on a, a project that involved uh, some some wound therapy, and it involved this foam, polyurethane foam material. And this, this, this particular polyurethane foam material was already in use for this exact application, exactly the same formulation. I mean, there's like three three uh, suppliers in the world that that make this particular foam, and we were trying to assess and evaluate the the biocompatibility impact and what we needed to do and that sort of thing. And and the supplier uh, had shared with us that there was a. Um, uh, I don't remember the exact term, but um, a master file uh, that they had uh, with FDA on that particular material, and but it but it was hidden from us, right? We we didn't have access to this, and it, we basically had to get a, a letter uh, authorized from the supplier to um, authorize uh, FDA to consult that particular file, and I thought that that was going to be um, helpful. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was or was not, quite frankly, because even after we did did that, we ended up still having to go through the the whole battery of tests, and and that was a head scratcher for me, to be quite honest. Granted, it was maybe a different era, maybe not, but uh, or maybe things are different today. But but there was a ton. I mean, this was this is a, a commodity, a material that had been used for decades, and there was long history of use, and reportedly there was a whole master file with FDA from this particular supplier with respect to biocompatibility, but we still had to go back to the drawing board. So that was a little bit of a head-scratcher to me.
0: That's a great example, John. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so so here's my next suggestion slash concern from the guidance. Uh, another thing that FDA asks for is uh, uh, a history of adverse events. That have, been, that have been experienced from this material. Remember, we're, thinking, we're talking skin contact applications here, John. So we're talking about things like redness and swelling and irritation and sensitization and allergic or other immune responses and so on. They're asking specifically for these adverse events being reported in clinical studies. Well, first of all, are we talking <laughs> about pre- or post market? Yeah. Right. Keep in mind, John, the vast majority of medical devices don't undergo clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So do we need our, you know, is that suggesting that we need to do a clinical trial for a Band-Aid, for example? Right. And I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, John. But that's, you know, that's a concern that I have about this guidance.
1: Well, and, another, and I, another. I was going to say ahead. if I could chime in there, too. Um, In in my entire history of working in the medical device industry, I mean, I appreciate the the context of identifying any sort of adverse events that are, um, quote, biocompatibility related. But it's not like that's not an obvious, always an obvious adverse event, right? So how does one do that?
0: Well, that now you're getting, I think, John, to the question of what, def- what defines an adverse event uh, or a significant adverse event. Yeah. That, that would be a topic of a different discussion, but it's not an easy question. For sure. Okay.
1: All right. Just one or two other
0: suggestions about the guidance. FDA says that sponsors should document... How they've determined biocompatibility risks and where biocompatibility testing is not necessary, uh, and again, to me, this is uh, this is a no-brainer. This is something that I've been doing for the nearly 30 years I've been playing this game. However, they go on to give some examples, and again, I quote: uh, identifying uh, biocompatibility testing uh, it, where it's not necessary, such as through Purchasing controls, production process controls, medical device reporting or MDRs and so on. And as you might guess, John, it's the first one. It's the purchasing controls that concerns me the most here. In other words, they're advocating using purchasing controls as a risk, uh, as a form of risk mitigation. Now, in some cases, that might be appropriate, but here's the concern I have. It seems that some of my friends at FDA have seemed to forget about the uh, recent and not too small gynecological mesh problem that we had, uh, which is basically a very common surgical implant that uh, led to the largest litigation in history since asbestos. Uh, And one manufacturer in particular is facing 48,000 lawsuits uh, over this, and they used purchasing controls as one of their principal forms of risk mitigation. Well, suffice it to say, John, and I have to be a little careful what I say here because I am you know, acting as an expert witness in the product liability case involving this area, but that was not an effective way of uh, risk management in this particular case. Um, just, just pause, John, because obviously I know you have a lot of uh, experience and expertise in the area of, yeah. of risk and quality. Any thoughts on that one?
1: Well, yeah, it is... Uh didn't mean to put you on the spot no no that's okay well Uh, (laughs) well, you probably did uh i know you well enough that that i think you take uh pleasure in that sometimes but uh, no i think it's (laughs) (laughs) folks mike and i have a good a good time on these things so uh but anyway um yeah i don't know it's 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 a little bit complicated because you know like the purchasing controls like what does that mean you know it's like so I'm buying something. What do, How do? How do I mitigate, manage those risk um, when it comes to biocompatibility? I mean, and and hopefully what I'm about to share it helps address this in some respects. But I again, I going back to the the way back machine a little bit in my brain, but I r- remember trying uh, you know in the past purchasing materials and trying to identify material providers that. Um, you know, we're providing materials to to med device, you know, maybe that's a, a form of risk mitigation sort of, but then I would inquire like, well, Hey, do you have biocompatibility um, data on, on this particular material? And, you know, a lot of times, like once upon a time, anyway, I don't know if this is still valid, but, but you, you probably remember that the USP class six stuff. Yep. Yeah, um, so sometimes suppliers would provide USP Class six information about the material, and then it's like that was kind of a head scratcher. Like, eh, this isn't really what I need from a biocompatibility standpoint. Uh, forget the fact that the the raw material that I'm gonna be purchasing, I'm probably gonna process further. You know, whether it's pellets for for uh, extrusion or injection molding or whatever the case may be, I'm gonna do something else to that material that. You know, arguably, could somehow change its physical characteristics in some way. So, you know that 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 is a little bit of a head scratcher to me. I don't I don't know how much value one gets from that perspective.
0: Well, let me just say this, John. When it comes to uh, biocompatibility and uh, risk mitigation via a variety of methods, including purchasing controls. This is obviously a complicated topic, and we could probably have a discussion just on that in the future if you wanted to. Now we could. But let me be clear. I'm, I, I, I'm not suggesting that we should not use purchasing controls as a form of risk mitigation here for, for Biocomp. We can. We just have to be careful in, as you just alluded to, John, the details of how we do it, and it should also not be, in my opinion, the uh, the principal, or certainly not the only way that we mitigate uh, risk right. in this case. Right. Which brings us to my last comment and suggestion about this particular guidance, John. Um, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on this because it's a it's a good discussion that we're having here. FDA goes on to suggest that labeling be used to mitigate risk of possible skin reactions. Oh. And again, I find that particularly curious for a couple of reasons. First of all, because as you know very well, John, ISO 14971 says quite clearly, it's one of the things that I agree with them on, that labeling should not be a primary risk mitigation yeah. measure. In other words, we, can, we should always do everything else that we can based on design based on training yada yada and labeling should be a last resort and also from a product liability perspective john a lot of people don't know in advance if they're hypersensitive or allergic to a particular material so even if we were to label it uh, that way how is uh, how how is the person supposed to know comments yeah. on that one john
1: Yeah, a couple of comments, and absolutely, um, not just because 14.971 says so, but just pragmatically speaking, labeling is the least effective um, means of mitigating risk, uh, period, full stop. Are you suggesting, John, that not everybody reads and follows the labels that we put on our products? (laughs) Well, uh, sorry, I snorted on that one. I think Uh, that's what ISO um, is saying. (laughs) uh, uh, Well, you and I both know very well that that, – labeling is if if you're counting on labeling to be your cya and folks if you don't know what cya means look it up i'm sure (laughs) you can find it on google um but if you're if you're relying on the labeling to be your cya i mean come on man that's that's a a, that's not a good idea (laughs) but then i'm like uh, a little conflicted sort of because there are certain materials where there is a you know, you mentioned asbestos uh, a moment ago, but there are certain certain materials that are more, um, um, I, I guess, commonplace in Med device. Like the first example that comes to mind is latex. Uh, yep. You know, that's that's a material that that uh, is very well known. And and I'm, I'm I'm picturing a box of of latex exam gloves and seeing you know. Um, right on the box the labeling that says this product contains latex um, and, and I suppose um, you know those have, glove manufacturers uh, have mitigated that by uh, making gloves out of different materials yeah so it, i just i just uh, i just think labeling if, if you 're counting on that it's just a poor practice in general especially considering most folks aren 't even going to read it
0: Well, once again, I don't want the audience to misunderstand what we're saying, or let me not speak for you, John, what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that we should not use labeling as a form of risk mitigation. We certainly can, but it's only one piece, and it shouldn't be the only piece. As I said before, ISO recommends, and I strongly agree, that it should be the risk mitigation of last resort. We should do everything else that we can, uh, short of labeling. To mitigate risk, and I'll give you a perfect example, John. And I think this is going to lead us right into the discussion of the of the second guidance, and that is on nitinol. I'm involved in some devices right now from a product liability perspective, where these were uh, permanent implants containing nitinol that went into patients, and some of these patients experienced um, uh, uh, adverse event reactions. Yeah, uh, because of uh, the nickel in these. Yep. and regrettably, the company did not even suggest that the that the patients were pre tested before the surgery to see if they were sensitive to nickel. What a lot of surgeons will do is they'll ask the patient, "Have you you know, when wearing jewelry, for example, have you ever had a uh, a, a reaction?" Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's okay, but that's often not enough, especially when it comes to a permanent implant. For sure. And so basically what I was able to do is I was able to flag this. And actually, it's interesting. I have to be really, really careful what I say here, John. But in the depositions of the companies involved here, when they were asked, why didn't you do this, which is technologically feasible, we could easily pretest these patients, they basically said, not quite in these words, but they basically said that, well, our device is a 510K. And the people that did the 510Ks before us, i.e. I, I, our predicates, they did not make that recommendation in their labeling. Therefore, we did not make it in ours. This is regrettably, mm-hmm. John, and I take no pleasure in saying this, you know, something that you and I have talked about many times, just because a company gets a 510K clearance, a PMA approval, a ISO certification, a CE mark, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. Yeah. And that, regrettably, what I just said, I think, John, maybe you disagree. That's a uh, a regrettable example
1: of that yeah well and and keep in mind folks that um you know if you reference a predicate that has any we'll just say age to it which all predicates have some age to them as far as um you know 510ks are concerned <clears throat> you, you have to keep up with the times and the state of the art and what we know today might be entirely different than what we knew back then and just exactly. because somebody else didn't do it doesn't doesn't mean that you don't have to do it as well. You have to keep up with with what's expected, state of the art. And we know today that that you know there have been some issues with with nitinol material uh, and and some adverse reactions that patients have with nitinol devices.
0: So shall we move on to that to the guidance dealing with yeah, let devices? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so. I, I just wanted to to short to start with a a short personal story on this.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, when FDA originally came out with this guidance about a year and a half ago, and now, as I said earlier, was just finalized, uh, literally about a week or so ago. Um, you know, as I said before, I'm an SME for for Biocomp for FDA, and when, and before they came out with the draft guidance, one of my FDA friends. Sent me a copy of the guidance, not just me, but you know a few other people, just to kind of solicit our 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 thoughts. And I basically said to them, "Look, uh, what you have in the guidance is fine, but let me ask you a stupid question. There's nothing in this guidance that came out in 2019 and 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 and, and finalized in 2020. There's nothing in this guidance that isn't in my biomaterials textbook from when I was a graduate student 30 years ago." Yeah. And they basically said, "Yes, Mike, we agree with you." But regrettably, there are people out there that don't know that. And that's a problem. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and this, this, this might be uh, a crazy thought or idea um, and, and probably, well, uh, not quite impossible or not entirely impossible, but very difficult to, to, uh, to manage. But, you know, shouldn't uh, well, maybe it's a rhetorical question. Shouldn't a medical device professional designing and developing products, shouldn't they have some sort of, uh, not necessarily advanced degree, but certainly some sort of um, uh, training or, or certification with respect to biomaterials? Like I said, maybe that's a rhetorical question.
0: Well, I'm John. I'm going to leave it as rhetorical because I think you and probably many in our audience uh,
1: know how I feel already about that one. Yeah. Uh,
0: but let me tick through just a couple, two, maybe three specific uh, recommendations about what's in this guidance. The first one is basically, you know, the guidance addresses devices that uh, contain nitinol uh, as that come in contact with a patient. Not just in terms of biocompatibility, but, you know, mechanical testing, corrosion, labeling, and so on. But again, just like we talked about with the previous John, uh, uh, guidance, John, what I find interesting is when we're working in the gray areas. So, for example, what if you have nitinol that you've done some sort of a surface modification to it, which is very common to do with devices today, uh, or you've applied a coating to it, or, you know, a litany of other technological possibilities? How does that affect? Uh, what's in this guidance. Another concern that I have, or not maybe a concern is too strong, but observation. Like we talked about earlier with polymers, where there's lots of different forms of polyurethanes and backgrounds and Teflons and so on and so on. uh, We have to be careful about overgeneralizing. There are a number of different types or formulations of metal, like stainless steel and nitro. Granted, not as many different formulations as polymers, but still there are some you know differences, and these differences do have different uh, properties that can influence biocompatibility, especially if they're used in different parts of the body. It's one thing to say, my device is going to be used in contact with the skin. It's another thing to talk about, say, a subcutaneous implant, maybe something in contact with the bone. It's a third thing to say a cardiovascular implant, maybe a stent that's going to be in contact with the blood. We can't treat all of those similarly. And again, I'll I'll give you an example from my world, John. I had a company company come to me some time ago. They said, we're using... This particular material, it has a history of use in other medical devices in the body. And I said, okay, fine, tell me more. It turned out that they were doing a blood contact application and they were uh, trying to make comparisons to uh, similar materials that are put in the abdominal cavity. In other words, uh, uh, in, the, you know, in contact with the visceral organs. Well, it shouldn't take a PhD in biomaterials or really immunology, John, because when we talk about biocompatibility, it's nothing more than a synonym for immunology. It shouldn't take an advanced degree or, as you said a moment ago, a certification in biocompatibility to appreciate that, gee, maybe the same material might be viewed differently by the body in the abdominal cavity versus in contact with the skin or in contact with the blood and so on. I don't know, John, is it me or is that, you know... and Unreasonable expectation to to to, to have. I,
1: I don't think it's unreasonable at all. Um, and, and let me um, elaborate a, a bit. You know, maybe provide some some examples. I mean, polyurethane, stainless steel, nitinol—all okay. great materials—and all with with terrific history of use and a lot of different applications for, for medical devices, al- along with many 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 other materials. But let's you know, like polyurethane. Yeah, you you've you get a formulation that has been used on other products. But you know, let's let's talk about a catheter application. Uh, you know, a common additive to polyurethane is uh, some radiopaque material so that it can be visible uh, under X-ray or, or CT and that sort of thing. Well the moment you start to add something to that, it, it now changes that urethane or uh, another common thing that, that happens with some urethane, especially like catheter type applications is you might put some sort of coating on the outside to, to make it more lubricious. And that now changes it as well. Same thing with like uh, like an implant. And, you know, there's lots of, of work being done on putting some sort of surface coating on hip implants and knee implants and that sort of thing. Well, that, that, arguably has an impact on the material characteristics, especially from a biocompatibility standpoint. Stents is another example. I mean, your, your nitinol or or other uh, stent material may be all fine and good, but what if you want to apply uh, a drug coating to that and, and what happens over time? These are all uh, significant factors that you must consider on this particular topic.
0: Very good. Uh, very well said, John. Maybe we can talk about perhaps one more question and then we can wrap this up.
1: Sure, that'd be great. Um so, so sorry so, yeah um, we've already hit on a lot of key points um uh, maybe folks are just you know I, I can imagine a lot of folks are like okay great mike john so what what, what does this mean to my <laughs> regulatory pathway uh what do i what do i do next well all right so
0: if we want to jump to some some takeaways from this discussion here's uh here's what i think are are some of my most important thoughts on this, John. And if I miss anything, uh, by all means, feel free to to add them. First and foremost, uh, as you alluded to a couple of times now, do your homework. If you are not an expert when it comes to biocompatibility, and there's nothing wrong with that, none of us can be experts in everything, then recognize that that's not your strength and make sure that you have somebody on your team. Again, whether it's an internal resource or an external, somebody like me or somebody else, who understands biocompatibility, and remember, as I said, biocompatibility is nothing more than you know a synonym for immunology, uh, understand not just what's in those guidances, including the ISO standard, because that's just the beginning. That's just the starting point, but really understands um, the intent of those uh, guidances and how to use them in reality. Don't just follow the guidance, do what makes sense. I mentioned earlier, I've been in many, many situations, John, where in particular, the uh, the ISO standard, ten nine 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 three, uh, in some cases is suggesting too much. And I will go to the FDA, usually in the form of a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub and say, hey, this is what 10993 says, and this is why we're not going to do it, and here are the following reasons. And in other cases, what 10993 or these other guidance says in my opinion, as a professional bi- biomedical engineer, is not enough, and I go to the FDA and say, "This is not enough, and here's what we're going to do instead." Uh, so, don't just follow the guidance like a like a mindless autom- automaton. You know, do what makes sense. And I know, John, we've talked about these kinds of uh, uh, things before. Maybe not precisely in the context of biocompatibility, maybe, you know, in the form of other examples. But sometimes I wonder, John, I know we have uh, an awful lot of people that listen to our discussions, but is anyone really listening? Because these problems, regrettably they seem to happen, you know, over and over. So those are just some of the, you know, the the high points that I would offer. Uh, I'm sure there's others that I haven't mentioned, mentioned, John. What would you add to that list?
1: Just to reiterate that folks, this is a topic that, that you need to address for any and all medical devices. Now, you know, again, to, to be redundant from what I've said earlier, I get it. You may, have a, you may be developing a software as a medical device. Does biocompatibility, is it applicable there? Probably not. And you can't just assume uh, that you don't have to do anything. You still need to provide rationale, justification, and explanation as well. I know it seems silly, uh, but but this is the expectation. I mean, I, I, I note the, the requirements of a 510K submission as an example. Biocompatibility has its own section in a 510K. Uh, you can't leave that blank, for example. And this is a deep topic that is not like, you know, a, a trivial thing. Um, do your homework again. I know we've stressed this uh, a few times uh, on the conversation today, but and start it early because um, I'll wrap up my side of things uh, today with a short story. Many many years ago, I was designing and developing my first uh, product as a, a biomedical engineer, product development engineer, and I was excited because we were about a week or so away from preparing and submitting our 510k submission this was going to be my first in my career and i started to go through you know a traceability matrix from a, a design control and from a risk standpoint and i realized that we we had omitted or forgotten or or something had fallen through the cracks on a particular biocompatibility test and that's not something you you want to forget about uh, especially if you're about to uh, submit a 510k to the FDA, that's that's certainly going to be a question, if not a reason for rejection uh, from FDA. And then and then when I peeled it back further, that particular uh, item that I had forgotten about was about an eight week test, and it was going to cost about fifteen thousand dollars. So. Um, Do your homework and do it early. Don't get to the point where you're about a a few weeks away from a 510K or any other sort of regulatory submission to start thinking about it because it's way too late.
0: Well, if I may, John, I know we're trying to wrap this up, but I thought the example that you mentioned a moment ago about biocomp testing for a software as a medical device, SAMD, was an interesting one. I want our audience to, to remember that one of the most common reasons why submissions, including 510Ks, are rejected on RTA, an uh, administrative review, is because a, a section is omitted. And that, to me, is such an amateur mistake. Put yourself in the shoes of the reviewer. If there's a section that's blank or omitted, FDA has no idea. Why yeah. that section is not there? Is it be- not there because it's not applicable, or is it not there because you just simply forgot about it and didn't know about it? Mm-hmm. So even in a case where biocompatibility for software, you know, that would be kind of a stupid thing for somebody to to talk about. But you 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 say in there not applicable, and I usually take it one step further, John. I usually will go on to say it's not applicable, and here's why. Now, yes. not all companies do that. Some companies only want to tell FDA exactly what they have to and nothing more. Yeah. And the logic to support that is we don't want to create a problem where, where no problem exists. But on the other hand, you know, other companies, and this is usually my approach, <clears throat> we try to prevent problems or questions from occurring. So I'll offer not a lot, but maybe a one or two sentence justification as to why it's not applicable and just a brief explanation. And I always do Mentally, sort of a risk-benefit analysis, and just a you know a mental two-minute exercise. What is the benefit of, a, of 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 providing that additional one or two expl- one or two sentence explanation as to why this is not applicable versus the risk of that in and of itself generating yeah. another question or problem?
1: Absolutely, so this I, I, is a I, strategy
0: that it's amazing to me how few people do it.
1: I I agree. And it's so simple to do. Um, uh, You know, if if you find yourself uh, uh, writing an explanation or justification and and it ends up being some sort of dissertation or report, mm, you might (laughs) want to rethink that. Uh, If you can't simply (laughs) state it in a sentence or two, uh, then then chances are it probably is applicable. So just keep that in mind, folks. Mike, anything else? Perhaps
0: put it slightly. Yeah, perhaps a slightly different way. If it takes you more time and effort to justify why you're not doing something yeah. than what it would take to do it. Maybe that's indicative of another problem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mike, this has been uh, terrific and, and folks, I hope you've enjoyed uh, a little bit of a deep dive into the, the topic of biocompatibility lots of of nuggets of well, information i hate to
0: say it, i hate to say it john is uh, a biomaterial guy i'm not sure i would consider this to be a deep dive but it was a good dive deeper <laughs> a,
1: a deeper dive a little bit below <laughs> deeper the surface dive. we're dipping our toe in the water dive. there you go <laughs> there you go <laughs> um, and and folks uh, remember mike drew's vascular sciences has a ton of expertise on all things regulatory and uh, specifically, and, and as it relates to this particular topic, uh, biomaterials and, and biocomp, he he is an expert. So if you have some questions, reach out to him. He's uh, available. He's happy to help you and and figure out, you know, uh, actions and paths and, and ways to, to particularly navigate this topic. So uh, Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences, as always, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you on the Global Medical Device Podcast. And, folks, a little bit about uh, Greenlight Guru. Uh, hopefully, you know about uh, the Greenlight Guru medical device quality management system software platform uh, that we have. It's the only medical device quality management system software platform that exists that's been designed specifically for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. I encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn a lot more about the platform. And if you're interested in, in getting a demo, click the button, request it. We'd be happy to chat with you. We're rolling out some exciting new functionality. We have this new thing called Visualize that that is pretty new in the platform. And think of uh, a, a, a mind map, if you will, a picture, uh, an app, this is a this visualized component is a picture of your quality management system and all the documents and records that you're maintaining as a medical device company and the connective tissue and how one thing may relate to another and and in on the topic of biocompatibility if, if i need to change a material i can instantly click a button, see how that material is impacted throughout my entire business. That's pretty freaking awesome if you ask me. So go to www.greenlight.gru to learn more about Visualize and, and the entire medical device quality management system. And as always, thank you so much for being a loyal listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. You are keeping us as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. So Continue to spread the word and and share this with your friends and colleagues. As always, this is the host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.